0: Welcome
1: to The Empowered Investor. My name is Keith Matthews and I'm joined by my co host,
2: Marcelo Tabuada. Marcelo, how are you today? Keith, I'm really good, happy that we're doing this episode. I'm always excited about this subject, you know, that's why we do the podcast. But I can't believe we're at episode 72. It's been a great journey, great learning experience. Well, we're coming up on our three-year anniversary, and a special thank
1: you to all our listeners, our clients, our friends, and contacts for giving feedback on what subjects they want to see and hear about. A hundred percent. So why are we going to be talking about financial fraud today, Marcelo? What's triggered this episode?
2: Well, listen, it's an exciting subject, but I think we both watched the same documentary. So there's a new documentary out on Netflix. Everybody should see it. It's called Made of the Monster of Wall Street. And it's four episodes. They're about an hour long, and it goes through the whole saga of the Ponzi scheme perpetrated by uh, Bernie Madoff that lasted a long time and it was a lot of money. So we'll go through the details. But I don't know you, Keith, but I was sitting through that documentary just like my jaw was like on the floor, like I couldn't believe how many missteps happen in all that like Ponzi scheme. It was insane.
1: So we both watched it. It is out, 2023 release, and it did in fact trigger us saying, let's put together a show on financial fraud. We're really going to sort of focus in on Ponzi schemes today. We'll look at what a Ponzi scheme is. We'll discuss and review some of the biggest Ponzi schemes that we've seen, both in Canada and the United States. We'll really hone in on why individuals fall prey, like what is going on in the background, And then we have a whole series of recommendations provided by the Ontario Securities Commission, the AMF in Quebec, the Canadian security administrators about how to watch out, what to do to protect yourself. Because in the end, Marcelo, as all of these shows on TV are now depicting, behind these frauds, a lot of lives are ruined. A lot of misery comes through from this. So we're going to review this. We're going to take it carefully. There's lots of different concepts going on here. But before we jump into Ponzi schemes, let's discuss some of the different types of fraud that
2: investors unfortunately can get caught up in. So, you know, that's a. Uh, there are many types of financial frauds. I think we know that. And again, the Ponzi scheme is just a form of them, right? We have so many different types, like corporate fraud. Like people remember Enron back in the 2000s. That was like, it's huge. Theranos recently with Elizabeth Holmes. And I mean, that one was incredible because you look at the people who invested. It wasn't only like regular people like us. It was big names like Jim Mattis, uh, George Schultz, Henry Kissinger, Rupert Murdoch. These are like big caliber people that invested into this corporate fraud. There is a great book called Bad Blood. If anybody can read it, that's a great read on how that happened. And the whole sequence of that fraud was incredible as well. Then we have FTX just recently on the news. Now, we still don't know... What's happening with this? You know, there's a lot of stuff going on with crypto right now. It was a Quadriga CX in Canada. There's still a lot of fuzzy details about that. Then you have pump and dump, uh, boiler room type of scams, which is like people doing cold calls and trying to pump certain like fly-by-night penny stocks, pump them to a level of price and then start selling. And then they just cash in and then everybody just loses a lot of money. Those are the ones
1: that were around in the 90s. Before the internet and before uh, emails, and and it was sort of old school, get a lot of people in a room, make a lot of phone calls, try to create excitement and try to trap investors. Right.
2: Then we have all the internet email texting scams that we have and that have been going up during the pandemic. They're deaths by a thousand cuts. You know, they're like super small frauds that happen on a day-to-day basis. But if you look at them on a year basis, like they amount to a lot of money. And these are like the scams, you know, I like, I know somebody who fell for a scam. It was something like, hey, pay your bill here. And he was like he brought you to the website of the bank and the website looked exactly like the website of the bank. And the only thing that worked was the link where you like go pay. So like this person who's like a bit older, you know, clicked on that and they got scammed like $200 and you have a lot of them like that. And, you know, the thing is, Keith, that we have a lot of more awareness now because you know, people have access to the internet, we have documentaries, books, there's like good journalists who uncover all this stuff. But the reality is that all these scammers, the more people are aware, the more sophisticated they become and the harder they work at tricking people. And we're gonna see more and more. I mean, I have no doubt about that.
1: You're absolutely right. I mean, we and we do hear from our clients on that, about either they're a little concerned about all this information that's coming at them, what's correct, what's true, what should I click on, and then we're hearing from some of our younger clients who are concerned for their parents. Again, a lot of that internet is really geared around trying to take some form of funds from individuals. A lot of them are seniors. We're actually going to put together a show just on that. We're going to get some computer experts to come in and and talk about what can be done to protect yourself. Yeah. Okay. So today's focus is going to be on Ponzi scheme,
2: And all of the things around that. So what exactly is a Ponzi scheme? Yeah. So when we think about Ponzi schemes, there is an anatomy to them. There is a process that follows. I mean, they won't all look the same, but usually they follow the same trajectory. So the step number one is invent a business or a type of investment that offers some kind of wild returns and wild profits induce a few people to invest. So get those early investors, by promising huge and steady returns in a safety environment, right? So imagine that would be Bernie Madoff's telling people, look, we're going to offer X amount of return with very little risk. It's safe, guaranteed investment, and it takes off from there. Like that's step one, right? Convincing those few early investors to trust you and give you their money. Number two is you take those early investors and you pay them Huge returns, just as promised. They become excited, they invest more, they tell their friends, their associates, they spread the word type of thing. And, you know, it just catches fire in that sense.
1: And I'm going to just say, it doesn't have to necessarily be huge returns. They're promising something, it could just be steady returns. Don't invest in the traditional way because there's volatility, invest in this way because it's steady and guaranteed.
2: Right. So step number three is you try to keep step number two as much as possible. So you want to get more money in. As that money keeps coming in, you can keep paying those investors as they're coming in. So the thing is here, you have to convince also the investors, like if you follow the steps, step three is also to convince the investors to leave the money in it. Because the problem is when you start because you're taking money in from new investors to pay old investors, that flow of money and steady cash has to keep coming in, but also the money has to stay in. If all of a sudden, I mean, we're jumping steps here, but most of them get uncovered when people start withdrawing money. That's why in a financial recession or there is a bear market and people start withdrawing money, the Ponzi schemes tend to collapse, right? So it's very important that people leave their money there. Now, step number four is since there is no profitable company or investment, Now the underlying promises start slowing down. And when the Ponzi scheme hits a point where it cannot sustain itself, this is where you start having problems. So when people start realizing, you know, this is a bit unrealistic or they're not getting the returns that they got or they start getting like weird excuses. This is when the house of cards starts to crawl type of thing.
1: The house of cards collapses when there's no new money coming in. You need money coming in. And along the way, one of the things that I think needs to be mentioned is the Ponzi organizer is taking money out. So money isn't just being paid to the first investors, it's the Ponzi is actually taking money.
2: Yeah. What are the next steps? The last step is either the fake business fails and they just declare bankruptcy and they just take the money and leave, or the... Ponzi scheme collapses, just like it happened with Bernie Madoff in the 2008s. You know, people start panicking. They want their money out. They want to hold on to their cash and it gets uncovered. And then the last step is that person either goes to jail or runs away. And that's it, it ends. And then people end up ruined, right? Yeah. So, interestingly enough, some of the biggest Ponzi
1: schemes have been uncovered. And like you said, market corrections. So, 2003, In particular, 2008, 9, 10, that whole turbulence uncovered some massive Ponzi schemes. When you have a market turbulence and equities are down and there's uncertainty, this is exactly when individuals say, well, you know what? Maybe I'm going to keep my money close to me. I'm actually not going to put it in this concept.
2: And that's where things fall apart. Yeah. Or you maybe lose your job and you start saying, you know what? I need this money to live on now. So- you start withdrawing that money. It's not necessarily just keep the cash because maybe a good opportunity, right? Some people actually need the money to live on, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So thanks for that, Marcelo. Let's now go over
1: some of the biggest Ponzi schemes in the US, as well as some in Canada, and then move to the next section after.
2: Right. So I think we can't talk about Ponzi schemes without the original Ponzi himself. So Charles Ponzi in the 1920s, stole about $15 million in just eight months. So he created this fake investment in international postal coupons. And now, you know, because it was one of the first ones and the biggest ones at the time, like now the fraud bears his name. So again, same concept. He takes the money from early investors, pays the new ones coming in, and he keeps perpetrating that until it collapses. So he spent around 13 years in prison and... There's still around, I think, 7 million were still owed to the investors at the end. And there is not much information of how much it was recovered. Like, so some of it was recovered, but still there was uh, some money owed in this, the money that he stole.
1: So Charles Ponzi, 100 years ago,
2: created this scheme. It's not the first one, but it was one of the big ones at the time. So now the fraud bears his name, right? Like people call it a Ponzi scheme now because of him. Fair enough.
1: And of course, the biggest one would be Bernie Madoff. Why don't you give us a couple comments on that one? And and this is what, it's the show on Netflix, which sort of reviews the entire process, how it started and how he basically kept it going for almost 20 years.
2: So I think that on paper, it's the biggest one because there's a very clear distinctions we need to make. So there's the actual money that went in and there's the actual market value of how much was on paper, Put into the Ponzi scheme, right? So the total value of the Ponzi scheme at the end when he was uncovered was 65 billion. Then the actual cash that went into the Ponzi scheme was about 19 billion and about 14 was recovered at the end. So he was sentenced to 150 years in prison, but he ended up dying in 2021 of kidney disease. Very tragic story. I mean, his two kids died. One of them committed suicide because of this. It's a total catastrophe. But the main thing- Well,
1: hang on. And and then not to mention, of course, the thousands of investors whose lives were completely ruined because of, of losing the funds, losing the money.
2: Yeah, it's losing the money, it's reputation, the stress it causes- I mean, you name everything that could go wrong, went wrong in that. But when it was happening, I I think a lot of the things that he did, because he had the legitimacy, like he'd started a legitimate business as a market maker. He was the head of the NASDAQ exchange at some point. So he had that legitimacy around him, and then he exploited that to commit this fraud. You know, Keith, when you think about it, people say that for a plane to crash, There's a series of mistakes that need to happen at the same time. I think this is sort of similar, you know, like you had a failure of regulators, lack of due diligence from investors, and then the fact that he exploited all these weaknesses in the system. So everything that could go wrong went wrong for investors in this type of scheme. I mean, it's crazy how many things lined up for him. What is amazing is that he had
1: that entire side and it was unregulated. Yeah, So we'll talk about regulation a little bit later, but that is a critical component for investors to understand, which is make sure you work with regulated individuals. That was an unregulated
2: business that he was running. Yeah. And the crazy thing is that he, like on paper, like he never invested a single dollar. They were all fake trades, but the actual strategy that he was selling was an actual strategy that people were implementing. But the first person who... Catch it on was, uh, I think, Harry Markopoulos is the name, He's future in the documentary. He was this like mathematician working from another firm. And he said, you know, mathematically, he was well aware of the strategy. And mathematically, he knew that the returns that he had based on the strategy were impossible. And he alerted the SEC in 2000, the beginning of 2000. That was the first letter he sent to the SEC, the regulators. And he just kept getting ignored, which is, you know, it's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. So that was the big one. That's the high profile
1: Ponzi scheme. And again, to the listeners, if you're interested, there's a great documentary on Netflix. It's a
2: four part series. Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about Canada. Right. So we have one here, you know, for the listeners in the rest of Canada. Earl Jones was a quote unquote investment advisor in the West Island here in Montreal. And he stole from 1982 to 1999, he stole $51 million. He served only four years in prison out of his 11-year sentence. And what he did, Keith, pretty much was he was a notary, unregistered as a financial advisor. He would settle estates for- Well, hang elder... on,
1: hang, hang on. He was not a financial advisor. No,
2: not a financial advisor. Yeah. Pretended to be one.
1: He pretended to be a person who could give returns. Correct. His background was in notary and generating wills and
2: estate planning. What did he do exactly, Marcel? He stole from the elderly. So what happened is he would settle the estates, and then he would take the money from that, and then he would promise them returns, which essentially, at the end of the day, he didn't invest in anything. He was a Ponzi scheme, and this was an unregulated individual. There was no custodian involved, so people were writing checks to him personally. So- at the end of the day, it was uncovered, and there was a settlement by the bank involved in these transactions because there was a lack of oversight. There was a settlement of about $17 million paid to the victims without an admission of guilt from the bank involved because at the end of the day, any transaction above 10000 needs to be flagged and investigated. Also, there was a lack of oversight there.
1: Well, I remember that one specifically because it happened, as you said, right in our backyard. I recall calling the regulators and actually saying, how did this happen? And their response was, it was interesting. They're like, Keith, we didn't even know he existed. And I go, how does that happen? And he's like, well, we don't know. I mean, this is an individual that's portraying as doing an active business. Again, he was unregulated, which means there's no inspections. He's not a registered investment advisor. This is an individual who basically put together a make-believe business. And that make-believe business had an offering, and as long as he could pull it off, he got away with it. That's a common theme amongst a lot of these. You have individuals that are very charismatic, that can really draw in and somehow earn trust, but they're actually not regulated. So what else, Marcella? What are some of the other ones in Canada that have unfortunately happened?
2: Yeah, it was a big one in Calgary, Gary Sorensen and Malo Brust. I'm not sure I'm butchering that name, but that's, I think, how it's pronounced. From 1998 to 2008, they stole $300 million. So none of this money was recovered, and it's doubtful that it'll ever be recovered, according to what we read. So, again, Ponzi scheme, you know... Take early investors, pay it out to the uh, to the uh, take more in, uh, more money from uh, investors coming in and pay it out to the early ones and keep that going until it was discovered. So at the end of the day, these guys moved out of the country. There was no sentence issued. There was a sentence issued. They both served only two years in prison out of the twelve year sentence, which is crazy. How can you just do two years after stealing three hundred million? It's, it's crazy. Anyway.
1: One of the things that we highlighted before was this idea of what happens when individuals get caught, and there's a big difference between Canadian law and U.S. law. In the United States, when you get caught for these types of actions, you get sentenced for 50 years. Well, Bernie Madoff got 150 years. Yeah. In Canada, you get sentenced for 5 to 10, maybe a bit more, but you're typically released within 2 to 3.
2: Unfortunately, white-collar crime isn't
1: penalized anywhere near as much as it needs to be in Canada.
2: Yeah, this guys, I mean, we have some information here, more detail on what they were promising. So this guy, Sorensen and Brost, were promising 34% annual returns if you invested $99,000, which they said would grow to $1 million after just eight years, and it was supposed to be low risk. So again, you get those early guys, they brag about it, and then it's word of mouth, right? It just spreads.
1: Well, we'll talk about that in the recommendations, because from all the regulators one of the number one things that they mention is be wary of anybody promoting high returns. Yeah. So that's that's one of the warning signals. The last one that we wanted to touch base on in Canada was the Norberg story, Vincent Lacroix, which happened here in Montreal. And while that's not a Ponzi scheme, it was nonetheless a very important moment. There's actually a great movie that I watched on the plane about a month ago called Norberg, and it speaks to the story of what actually happened. So this is more business fraud. You have an individual who creates a business and unfortunately takes money from the business, which has end investors. So for those that are interested, that is also another very good movie about this type of subject called Norberg.
2: Yeah. People can watch it on Crave. And what was interesting about that one is it wasn't a Ponzi scheme, like you said, but the company was actually investing so people could buy their mutual funds and there were actual investments happening, but he stole about 70 million from misappropriating funds, essentially. He was using the money from the investors to for personal use. And at the end, he stole about 70 million. 55 million was paid out to victims, but he only served two years out of a uh, 12-year sentence. And there was another individual also that helped him, perpetrate the fraud, which is an ex-employee of the AMF, the regulators that were supposed to be overseeing what this company was doing. So, yeah, great movie. And it's again, I was just, my jaw was in the floor. Uh, the same thing with the maid of one. It's like, how could this happen? It's just like, it's crazy. And, you know, the amount of people that got scammed and, and suffer for this is, is crazy.
1: So, Marcelo, why does this happen? Why do people fall? for these schemes. What triggers an individual to start moving towards investing in these concepts?
2: You know, it's common things, you know, like people say, you know, history does repeat itself at the end of the day, you know, the context changes, but we've had the same brain for millions of years, right? So I think it's greed, FOMO, fear of missing out, it's human nature, it's lack of knowledge. I mean, what can I say? I mean, those are the big four that I can identify, but I think greed is the one that it's the most important one when it comes to this type of things because it's just the idea that you can get more with no risk and yeah I think people get mentally blocked and they say you know what maybe it is true and they just don't want to believe after they've been convinced that this can be done Yeah and I I would also
1: add lack of knowledge you know it's a really big one I'll give you an example I remember I remember 20 years ago somebody coming up and saying there was another North Shield was another one that happened in Canada. I remember somebody coming and saying, I can get a 9% guaranteed return. And and I said, that's not how it works. A guaranteed return, tell me what a seven-year government of Canada bond is yielding, or maybe a 10-year, and that is a guaranteed return. The government of Canada, you have faith that that money will come back to you in the form of an interest rate. So let's say the government of Canada 10-year was yielding 4%. Anything over 4% has risk. Correct. That's what we call the risk-free rate, right? So you sit back and say, if they're going offer you 7%, there is risk in that. Yes. If they're offering you 12%, there is risk in that. Yeah. So that's the problem. And I think a lot of individuals don't necessarily understand the mechanics of risk and return and what is reasonable and what is not. I think the industry has gotten so much better at protecting individuals and so much better in terms of transparency compared to even just 10, 15 years ago. Yeah.
2: And then, you know, FOMO is a big one too. You know, we've, we've talked about this many times, you know, it's social media and the fear of missing out leads people to do this, you know. <laughs> You look at some of the studies, you know, if you want to predict where somebody's going to live or what car they're going to drive, just look at what their neighbors drive, right? So there is this human psychology of like, if you see someone getting something that you don't have, you want it more type of thing. So I think this is a big psychological aspect of a Ponzi scheme too, where you're hearing somebody getting amazing returns, then you want in, you know, you feel, you feel left out and, and that's a big one too. No, you're right. You're right. And I would add to that this idea that somehow they can
1: get an investment return higher than a government bond without any volatility. So the only way you can get extra returns is taking on extra risk. And it does come with uncertainty. It does come with volatility. And that's part of a diversified portfolio. So if you don't want to live through the bumps, you can't have the extra returns. Yep. So let's start wrapping the show up here. Key recommendations. We have a bunch of them. We're pointing to really three key organizations. The AMF, which is the regulator in Quebec, has some very strong documentation. We're talking also about the Ontario Securities Commission, which has some very strong documentation. And then finally, Canadian Security Administrators, which also has great recommendations. So let's start with some of the warning signals. What do these organizations speak to to prepare investors, what they should be looking out for?
2: Yeah, so like the red flags is the promised high returns with little to no risk and the feeling pressure to buy now. I think that's a big one. So those are the two red flags that we identified. They're very basic ones, but that's the ones we need to be really careful. So
1: So, hang on, hang on. So what are you saying? If somebody is offered a high return for no risk? Yeah. It's amazing. That shows
2: up in every single warning from all of these regulators. Correct. You know, in other words, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. There is an old saying about that. And the feeling pressure to buy now, I think that's a big one because if you're getting into something like that, I've experienced, you know, like being sold like pyramid schemes and that type of thing. And you do feel that environment of like, that the salesman knows that if they let you walk away, you won't sign. So you feel that pressure of like signing today. So I think that is a huge red flag because they know that if you go home and start talking to friends and like people who have more knowledge, you're probably going to cover it and start asking tougher questions. So I think that environment of like the pressure of buying now, like right now, it's it's a huge red flag.
1: I like the way you've said that. And the AMF has actually stated it as... Uh... And now or never offer. So be yeah. wary of the, you've got to get in now or it's not going to be available for you. Yeah. So there's high returns at little risk. There's pressure. Stay, watch pressure. They've also spoken about things like, be wary when individuals say we have inside information or it's a hot tip or I've got this information that you can't get somewhere else. And so therefore you must act. Yes. Okay, so that's a big one. What about registration? What are all these organizations saying about
2: registration? So look, let's go through the five steps of the AMF to avoid fraud. I think that's a good list. Okay. So the first one is check that organization is legitimate. So, for example, us—if you go and check out the name of the firm or my name, your name—you're gonna see us registered in the securities regulator's uh, website, right? Like everybody needs to be registered. So that's the first step then before investing, insist on getting documents explaining the investment. So you need to get uh, documentation. The regulators have standard documentation that needs to be presented in a certain way to investors. So if you get something that looks maybe poor or maybe looks professional, try to like consult a professional, several professionals if you have to, and compare it or even call the regulators and ask them how this document is supposed to look like, right? Like Make sure you take those steps. Make sure the offer is not too good to be true. So we talked about that one. Number four is beware of offers like guaranteed offer with no risk, do or die type of investments. Like if you don't do it now, it's going to disappear. So those type of things beware of. And do not make any deals with people who try to guilt you into investing if you say no. If they say things like, oh, I can't disclose the firm or can't name the name of the investor I I have the money with because X, Y, Z, Beware of those things. Beware of like people who get defensive when you ask questions. That's a big one.
1: Mm, that's a very good one.
2: I think in this industry, you have to be an open book. You have to be an open book. And sometimes people confuse being friendly for being a friend. At the end of the day, like the relationship we have with our clients, Keith, is a professional relationship. We're not friends of these people, right? I mean, if we have a friendly relationship, that is okay. And I could be friends with some of my clients. That's not a problem. But I think when you're shopping for an advisor, just because somebody is friendly doesn't mean it's trustworthy. You got to dig deep and ask the tough questions. Yeah, 100%. So that's a great list from the AMF, Marcelo. And the
1: Ontario Securities Commission offer similar pieces of recommendation as does the Canadian Securities Administrator. So what's nice is that for all listeners, if you were to go to any one of these websites, the AMF, Ontario Securities Commission, Canadian Security, you'd get these documents that you'd be able to download and and just kind of go through. And a lot of it it appears common sense, but they're still nonetheless very powerful.
2: We're going to put all those links on the show notes. And before we go, like there is a checklist that I want to just share it with you because that's a good one. So the OSC put this checklist, it's five questions. It's a yes or no, and that'll tell you if it is a scam or not, right? So All right.
1: So share the five questions.
2: Right. So let's say you come to me, Keith, and you say, Marcelo, I have this great investment. So I'm going to go through this checklist and I'm going to say, okay, number one, were you promised a high return on a low risk investment? Yes or no, Right. Number two, did you have enough time to make a decision? Yes or no? Were you given confidential or inside information? That's number three. Number four is, can you verify the investment with the credible source? Number four. Number five is, is the person who contacted you registered? So five questions, yes and no. That should give you a good indication whether you're dealing with a scam or not. So again, we'll put the resources for people to check. Also, I will put a list of the books where people can read more about like frauds you know there's the andron one the smartest guys in the room there is the made of one called the wizard of lies there's the one on theran also if people want to read more I'll we'll put a link to all those books that people can go read and if they're interested
1: excellent well listen marcelo i want to thank you for your research in today's episode and today's show also chloe who's one of our new associates who jumped in and uh, helped us do a, put together the research behind today's very important topic. So thank you so much for contributing and sharing and providing great recommendations as to uh, what investors should be looking out for.
2: Yeah. Thank you for listening.
1: All right, guys. Thank you so much and have a great week. We'll see you next time.
0: You've been listening to the Empowered Investor Podcast, hosted by Keith Matthews,